Good morning, Southbridge. I'm so glad that you're here, really. I hope that you're glad you're here. I hope that when you leave today, you're glad that you came here today. And I have a confession. I, uh, I had a plan for our church to get a billion dollars through getting the brackets correct on the tournament. And I didn't do it. I'm sorry. Last week we talked about confession and I thought I should tell you that. This morning we're continuing on in our series in the book of Acts. We've been studying this book for quite some time and it's a long book and we've been going through it verse to verse in an exposition style. And so we come to the next section which will be Acts chapter 20. So if you have a Bible you can turn there to Acts chapter 20. And what we found out about this book right away was in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 we see Jesus speaking to his disciples And this is before he ascends to the Father's side, right in front of their eyes. And he tells them that they're going to be his witnesses to the whole earth. And this is a true principle for anyone that's going to be a disciple of Christ. Those that are Christians, followers of Jesus, they are his disciples. And so when you woke up this morning, I don't know if you knew this or not, but if you're a Christian, if you are in Christ, God had a mission for you, and that's to make him known. That his renown would be on your lips. And so we've entitled this series, The Study of the Book of Acts, Movement, because it's really about the movement of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And we see that the church is developed and we've seen some highs and lows for the church. We've seen persecution develop. And even last week we saw Christians that confessed their sin in front of a whole bunch of people and laid down their idols. And then other people that didn't want to see people lay down their idols were terribly angry. And so there was great persecution. And then we come to today's text with the theme in mind that God's made you in him when you joined him and his family as a believer to be on mission. We have to decide daily what's our mission going to be today. And in Acts 16 through 19, we see that the author, Luke, who is a follower of Christ and basically a disciple now following with Paul, in chapters 16 through 18, Luke focuses on Paul's second and third missionary journeys and his ministry is primarily to those that don't know Christ yet, sharing the gospel with them so that some might be saved, as we say. But then in chapter 20, there's a shift, there's a difference And it's the conclusion of Paul's third missionary journey, and he's making his way back to Jerusalem, and he's actually ministering to those that are believers, going back to the towns that he'd been before and trying to bless them and encourage them. And so let's look at Acts chapter 20, and we're going to look at the whole text. This morning, our text is going to be verses 1 through 12. So I'll read it for you as you follow along. Here we are, Acts chapter 20, verse 1. When the uproar had ended, speaking about the uproar in Ephesus in the text preceding, because every text has a context, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months. This is where it's believed that Paul wrote the book of Romans. Because the Jews made a plot against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. Good idea, Paul. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus, and from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus, unfortunate names, from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, Tychicus, and Tromphius from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we, and that's an interesting word, we, because that means the author is now present again as an eyewitness. We sailed from Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. So what we have here is another travelogue. We've seen this several times throughout the book of Acts. Verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in the window was a young man named Eutychus, and the phrase young man in Greek would probably indicate that he was between the ages of 7 and 14. 
who was sinking into deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He is alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly encouraged. That's our text for today. When you speak expositionally, you just come to the next text, and here we are. I need to ask this question. Are there any insignificant stories in the Bible? That's mostly not rhetorical. I need your help with that. No. Okay, I'll answer. Jason, that's the answer is no. So I can honestly say this. Since I've known Christ when I was seven, but I started going to church when I was born, Sunday morning, Sunday school, Sunday night, Wednesday night, maybe some of you grew up with that heritage. And I went to a Christian school, K through 12, which had a Bible class every day and then chapel every week. And then I went to a Christian college, which had chapel every day, but I also was a Bible comprehensive major and education major. And then I've been in pastoral ministry for 13 years. I have never heard this passage preached. When I went online to get some help to find existing messages, there wasn't much there, so I couldn't steal anything in Jesus' name. (laughs) So we're in trouble. We're really in trouble. Um, So while people debate the, the doctrinal merits of this passage, the story of Paul and his team's journey to meet with other believers and the account of Eutychus is a beautiful example of an important characteristic that are supposed to be found in the Christian life and in the church community. An important characteristic should be found in each individual and in the church in total. So when studying a portion of Scripture, it's always good to ask questions in the observation stage of your Bible study. And one of the questions to ask is, is there any repeated phrases or words? And the answer to that question for this text is yes. The word encouragement is used three times in this passage. Verse 1, verse 2, and verse 12. And in verse 12, it's, the English translation is comforted, but it's the same Greek word in all three verses. 1, 2, and 12. So the author uses this word then to describe Paul's ministry to believers. Look at verses 1 through 3 again with me. When the uproar ended, Paul sent for the disciples, so those are the followers of that area, followers of Christ in that area, and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He traveled throughout, uh, through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to people, and finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months. Because the Jews made a plot against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. Just seems like another travelogue, doesn't it? But we see the word encouragement used twice within those three verses. So Paul had a plan. He had a plan to, to leave Macedonia and eventually head back to Jerusalem much sooner. That's what he wanted to do. But because of the riot in Ephesus, he held off for a bit. But when th- he thought things were settled back down, he began his travels again. But before leaving, he called the believers around. And the scripture says that he's saying goodbye to them and encouraging them one last time. We don't know if he'll see them again. We know in time he dies. And many of them suffer greatly as a result of following Christ. So not only was Paul this apostle, this traveling person sharing the gospel and has this group of disciples with him, um, planting churches with him. He's not just an evangelist, but we see that he's like this pastor, this encourager, which is great because believers need encouragement. If you need to write one thing down today, you can just write that down. Believers need encouragement. Everyone needs encouragement, but especially believers. When we look at the life of Paul, we see that Paul encouraged believers in multiple ways, with his presence, with authenticity, like yielding up of his own defeats and losses and battles, with his words and with his actions. Let's ask about that first one. Have you ever been blessed or encouraged by someone just being there? I remember the worst day, one of the worst days of my life was just a few years ago. 
my wife was, um, I, we had planned for my wife to go home to her, um, where her parents lived near Philadelphia. Her dad was having a major surgery. And so I thought I'd be brave and I'd stay home without our time, our four oldest. We have five now. We don't know what we're doing. But we, have four, we had four at the time. So my wife stays home with the children most days, unless she, um, she does a little bit of work sometimes, but most times she's working hard at home. And uh, I thought, well, I can do it for a couple days. And I was terribly, terribly wrong. So the day she left, I got stricken with the bubonic plague or the man cold, red scare, black death, whatever you want to call it. But it was a flu, and it was terrible. The kind of flu where you think you just breathe out your last, and you're not going to breathe out the last breath. And that's it. And then you just lie down on the bathroom floor just trying to take in the cool from the tile. It just becomes your best friend, the cool of the tile. Of course, I've got four other children in the house. And so I'm quite sick. And I'm hearing children upstairs playing while I'm downstairs visiting the restroom and having a good talk in there. And then I hear this scream. And my youngest son at the time, Ethan, broke his leg. Broke his femur. He was two at the time. My wife's gone. Usually I call out her name when bad things happen she can just solve the problems. And we were in trouble. So what am I going to do? I could sense that my child couldn't walk. And so I'm going to have to take him while throwing up to the emergency room. So I call one of my dear friends at church, Jared. You don't usually call just guys to come and randomly babysit your kids. But I did. He came over from IBM and just didn't say a word. He was just there. And he said, I'll do whatever you want me to do. He just took care of the kids for hours. Amazing. That's what I needed. As another brother in Christ, I could trust him. He comes with the kids, and then I take Ethan along with my brother and his wife for their aid to the hospital. It was a terrible day. But I felt blessed and encouraged that I could count on a friend. Have you experienced that? Maybe something that's even more heavy than simply a broken leg where someone's there. Sometimes believers feel like they have to say something. <laughs> that's usually when we get in trouble. Paul is someone that his presence encourages people. We see it over and over again in the book of Acts, all the way up to this point in chapter 20. So he encourages people with his presence and with his authenticity, and vulnerability breeds itself, doesn't it? So when he yields of himself, people recognize that they can identify with him, and then he uses words of encouragement. We'll see that in a moment. And then actions, of course, as he visits people physically and gives away of himself. We can assume then that Paul encouraged them by spending time with them, praying with them, sharing God's word with them. He loved to preach. And the first time he entered these cities, then his goal was to share the gospel that some might be saved. And now on his return trip, he's ministering to the believers. His goal is to encourage the believers. The Greek word translated here in verse 1 as encouraging is uh, parakaleo, which literally means um, to urge, exhort, console, comfort, cheer, cheer up, build up. And it was vitally important to, the, to lift the spirits of these young believers to help them keep the faith in the midst of their trials and their difficulty. Why? Because believers need encouragement. You know, sometimes we fail to realize when we're reading the scriptures how difficult it was for people to submit themselves, to surrender to Christ as their Savior. When people did, made this decision in this culture, and actually in other cultures today, but not as pressing in this one, not as much in this culture, for them it often invited harassment and abuse and sometimes then all-out persecution. We see it over and over again in the, books of, the book of Acts especially. So these fledgling churches were small and new, and they needed all the encouragement they could get. And so Paul, as his way, on his way back to Jerusalem, is just giving as much as he can. In verse 2, Luke, the author, uses the same word again in verse 2 in reference to Paul's ministry to the churches in Macedonia and Greece. And while there, the scripture says that Paul shared many words of encouragement to the people. Let's ask the question then again, why did Paul use many words of encouragement? Answer, because they were suffering in many ways. 
And we see this kind of encouragement throughout his writings. So I challenge you this week, if you like to, spend, like to spend time in God's word, look at the introduction of each of the letters that he writes to churches. Look at how he prays for these people. He's just constantly overflowing with words of encouragement and blessing them because he knows the hardships that they face as new believers in their time and culture. Some have said this, maybe you can fill in the phrase, that talk is cheap. How has that become known? That's half true, isn't it? It's true when someone who has um, a history of being inconsistent with their actions that you feel like you want to say that that talk is cheap, especially someone that's been, um, that has cheated or abused or robbed or misused your trust. Then we might say that phrase in our minds that talk is cheap or action speaks louder than. But it's not all the way true because have you ever had a parent bless you and say, I believe in you? Or a teacher say that to you? Words have power. Our conversations have weight, don't they? And so although Paul can't give them everything, he can give them words because words matter. Words have power. Talk is cheap sometimes, but sometimes it's not. Have anyone ever told you before that God loves you? See, words matter, especially when the truth is attached to them. Flattery would be, I'm giving you a compliment so I can get something I want. And that compliment may or may not be true. It's actually in a form of abuse. Placating is, I'm telling you what you want to hear so that you like me. Or because I'd want you to tell me what I want to hear. So sometimes the truth has nothing to do in that conversation. There's power in those abuses, but there's also power in the truth, a different kind of power in the truth. This is why in scriptures we see over and over again that the words give us life. Like, for instance, Jesus says this, in this life you will have trouble. Some Christians try to say you'll never have trouble if you're a Christian. That's a lie, because Jesus says, in this life you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So if you are in Christ, you've got Christ. Take heart, you've got Christ. Have you ever heard this promise before? Has this ever given you life before in a time of discouragement? I will never leave you or forsake you. Some of you have been abandoned before, but guess what? If you've got Christ, he's never going to leave you or abandon you based on your behavior. He's not going to do it. He's never lied. See, words have power, don't they? 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7 says this, Cast your cares or anxieties, your prayers to God, because he cares for you. That promise gives me life. So Paul shares many words, the language says here in Greek, many words of encouragement for these people because believers need encouragement. Conversation has a peculiar power to tear down or build up. I I really want to focus on this a bit because we need to be thinking about the weight of our words as believers to other believers. I'll give you an example in my home about the power of words. Have you ever heard kids say this before? Maybe you say it as an adult and this would be strange. I'll be your best friend. That would be weird, wouldn't it? But kids grow up to be adults that talk like that. Usually it's contractual, if you, then I, right? If you give me the rest of your ice cream, then I'll be your best friend. And that might be true for me. (laughs) If you, then I. I'll be your best friend. But we've had it in our home before where the kids say this. I'm not your friend anymore. Or the best one I've ever heard, which is actually the worst, is this. You're not my family anymore. All pounding, angry. How could a three-year-old conjure that up? What are they trying to do? Because even a three-year-old knows that Words have power. The delivery of those words mean a lot. How many of us had dads that seemed to influence us greatly in a negative way or positive way by a word? And our babies, they do the same with their words. And as Paul's with these people, these baby Christians, he's attempting to encourage them because they live in a rough time. And it's possible in our time and culture, in time here in the States, we could face the same thing, yeah. Words have power, and especially the truth. And promises related to the truth give life. And that's the kind of message that Paul would give to these brand new believers. 
Isn't it true that people who want to encourage others then speak with goodness and grace? Their conversations then create um, an atmosphere of kindness and love. You're not an encourager if you're the kind of person that's always seeking that you're competitive. Oh yeah, that's nothing. Let me tell you. (laughs) See the difference between me and you? That's not an encourager. And Paul was an encourager. In fact, we see in Scripture that there's a command as Christians to be encouragers to other people. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and this was written by Paul. We'll look at a lot of scripture written by Paul today on purpose. He's writing to a brand new church in Thessaloniki to these Thessalonian Christians. He says this, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. That's a verse to hide in your heart. It's a command. It's a mutuality command. It's one of the several one another commands that we see in scripture. So when we look at our seemingly obscure text today, is there anything in this scripture we can ask? Is there anything that is right that should be imitated as commanded in other scriptures. Well, here we have it. We have Paul demonstrating himself to be an encourager, and we see the command in scripture elsewhere to be an encourager. So encouragement is to people then in the church what like um, regular care to a vehicle would be. See, knowledge is this. I know that my car needs oil. And wisdom is this. I go and get oil changes. Now I hate car stuff because I'm driving a depreciating asset and I don't know anything about it. So I go to the worship pastor and say, it's, it sounds something like this. Weak, 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 weak. Did you know what that means? It's more like, maybe. That's what it sounds like. But I know when I'm hearing something that my car needs care. And more importantly, then people are the same. That encouragement, ongoing encouragement is like the ongoing care of your vehicle. You can know that people need care. Wisdom applies that knowledge. And then you see longevity in the life of other people because they've received Encouragement. So encouragement is the mutuality command that enriches and fortifies the lives of faithful people. And that's exactly what Paul knew and did. And the reason why he's doing this is because it was modeled to him from Peter, we know, and that Peter did because it was modeled by Christ. And Christ only did what the Father told him to do. So we're supposed to be encouragers. The problem is that some of us have the spiritual gift of discouragement. Well, I'm just getting constructive criticism. It's not very constructive sometimes, is it? We're supposed to be encouragers. So let's ask this question as good Bible students should do. Why do believers today then need encouragement? And I'll give you a couple ideas. Number one, if you'd like to take notes, you can write this down. Here's a reason why people might need some encouragement from you. Because they're suffering. In times of suffering, people need encouragement. You have people in your life that you could probably pinpoint if you just think about it for a minute that are suffering in some way. And Paul knew this too, and this is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3-7, through 7, a word of encouragement for those that are suffering. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort. Now flow with this carefully here. Who comforts us in all our troubles, talking about the Lord, so that, when we, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. It's like telling someone else of the hope that you have in Christ when you recognize that they're suffering, that you're encouraging them with the truth of who God is, that he cares. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. And our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our suffering, so also you share in our comfort. This is the same guy that we're talking about in our text today. Paul wrote these words to a new church in Corinth, a church that really struggled with a lot of stuff. 
People need encouragement during time of suffering. Can you think of someone who in your life is suffering that needs your encouragement as a believer? See, in times of grief and loss, we encourage others. And here's an amazing thing then about our lives is that we can call upon our own suffering or loss, grief, disappointments, making us sensitive then to other people and attentive to their struggles, as opposed to turning in and isolating. And that's what the accuser wants to do in your life. He wants to isolate you. No one understands this but me. I'm the only one that struggles with this. That's not true. So the amazing thing about a life that has trouble in it is that we can look and identify that in other people and say, what can I do to encourage you? Can I come over? I won't say a word. Or then you say a word and say, I'm just, I'm praying for you. I'm sorry this is happening. What can I do? Can you think of someone that needs that? There's another way. There's another reason why believers today need to be encouraged, and it's to encourage people to persevere. And Paul did this. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 14, we see his words to these brand new believers in Colossae. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you and asking God to fill you with this knowledge of, of his will through all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And we pray this in order that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and may please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance, which is a synonym for perseverance, and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. Who do you have in your life whose faith is faltering? They're discouraged. They feel like no one can ever give any kind of answer or hope for the big questions they have about God or life. They need you. See, if believers lack zeal, we encourage them. Or lose heart, we exhort them. That's a form of encouragement. It's pumping them up with the truth. If they struggle with a problem or stumble in their walk because sins overcome them, then we come alongside them. We don't say, clean up your act before I hang out with you another time. You journey with them once they've confessed that sin. And say, we're on the road to freedom together. Let's do it together. That's an encouragement of perseverance. Who in your life needs that? Will you do it? There's another way. And it's, it's a real um, positive one that a lot of times people miss. And it's, an, it's encouragement in the times of faithful service. And we see that Paul did this, another example. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. We always thank God for all of you mentioning you in our prayers, Paul writes. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessing people that have been faithful in service. Did you know it takes 100 people to make a Sunday morning happen here at the theater? And for many of those 100, they're the same ones that are doing it every week, week after week after week after week. To you, I want to say, if you serve on a team, thank you. Most church plants don't make it to the fourth year of their existence. We turn seven, March 4th. And what happens is that that encouragement keeps people going. Who do you have in your life that's been a faithful person, a faithful father or a friend? Maybe you know a single mother that's been working so hard and they haven't received a word of encouragement about their dedication to their kids. They need a word from you. Encouragement and faithfulness. See, the, the church needs a critical mass, though, for, of ordinary faithful people in order to survive. If we didn't have people serving on a team, then we couldn't meet. We often then fail to realize how much the church depends on such faithful people until they're gone. So I want to challenge you to look for excuses to honor each other's faithfulness. But we know according to the scriptures, we don't just encourage people um, 
and reaction, but we do something proactively. We see this challenge of encouragement in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. I'm trying to consider encouragement from every angle this morning in a travelogue. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily. Tomorrow may never come. As long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So not only do we have encouragement based on things that are happening, like people are suffering, or need to be encouraged because of their perseverance issues, or because they've been faithful in service, but we're trying to encourage people to be true to the Christ that they say rules their lives. We're trying to encourage people to come alongside them and say, stay away from the sin that wants to so easily entangle you and get you off mission, the mission that we see from the beginning of this book, to make the gospel known that Christ's renown would be on our lips and that many people might come to know him. Not enter into a religion, but into a relationship with Christ. But what sin wants to do is keep us isolated and not do that. So believers need to encourage other believers to be aware. To say no to sin and say yes to Christ, to be on mission. This is a proactive way of encouragement. Back to our text. An interesting thing in this travelogue is that we see that Paul is not alone. He's not alone in the encouragement ministry. Look at verse 4. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, and some other people. These men, went on, these men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas, but we sailed to Philippi after the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. So these are representative. We have seven, seven fellows here. We know that um, a few of them are from Asia, we see. Three from Asia, or four from Asia, and three from Macedonia. And these were representatives of now Gentile churches that are bringing an offering with them. And um, we know this from Acts chapter 24, so you have permission to read in ahead. You can read your Bibles, it's okay. And we know that these are folks are bringing with them an offering from their churches so that when they come to the Christians in Jerusalem, which are now like converts from Judaism to Christianity that there's a gift to them because many of those people in Jerusalem were terribly poor. Isn't that amazing? So not only is Paul alone in this, but he's brought seven other people with him, and what they're doing is they're bringing their money, which is an idol to most of us. And they're yielding of themselves their own money, traveling great distance with Paul so that these believers in Jerusalem might be encouraged. What an amazing picture of the church. Think about all the differences they might have, maybe different languages and different tastes and their different diets, that, you know, different foods that they like, but they've got Christ. Think about our own church. Some of you, unfortunately, happen to be Duke fans. But if you're a Christian, then we've got Christ. It's terrible for you, but it's great that we've got Christ. Nonsense, right? Some of you come from lives that have been full of trouble. And some of you have great home lives growing up. And some of you have no home life growing up. Some of you had wonderful education. Some of you had no education at all. Some of you just came to know Christ recently. Some have known Christ since you were a babe. But the bond that we have is in Christ. We were once lost and now found. We were once dead spiritually and then made alive because of Christ. And that's what we see here with these seven people. There's more here than just a travelogue. There's a real story happening here. These are real places. And they're coming and they're bringing this gift. I wonder, are we willing to do the same As Christians, are we willing to support other Christians? Are we willing to give up of our own time, talent, treasure to be a blessing to other believers? We know we're supposed to reach the world. We want to bless those that don't know Christ as well. But the text today is driving us to consider how are we encouraging other believers? It's something worthy to be imitated. 
the text moves on. What an interesting story we have here. Look at verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking till midnight. His plan is to go to Jerusalem, which is about a six-weeks trip. So he's just speaking to them as long as he can, as many words as he can. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting, and these lamps then would give us an, off a, knife, a nice heat, maybe a, s- a smell of oil a bit in the air. In an upstairs room, people um, imagine that you can fit about 40 people in these upstairs rooms at this time, and maybe they jammed them into 50 or 60. Seated in a window <laughs> was a young man named Eutychus, which is a common name for um, slaves, servants at the time who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. I wonder if Paul has ever read this scripture in the kingdom if he wants to say to Luke, easy Luke, it's not on and on. It wasn't that bad. It looks like I was there. You went on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. I was thinking to myself, what are the worst places to fall asleep? This one ranks really high next to, um, I think, being in a shark tank with chum all over you. I think. This reminds me quickly. I have to tell a story. There was a time um, I experienced this sinking into sleep. Have you ever experienced this before? Where you want to be aware but can't. So put yourself in the text to try to resonate with this young boy. I remember uh, when I was in college, I was responsible for driving um, a 15-passenger van. I don't know how I was chosen, but I went and got qualified and did this, and I was taking a class um, when I was an education major to be in elementary education, and I had to find an emphasis for this major. This is all important details. And because I couldn't find any subjects that I liked, which is a problem if you want to be a teacher, I chose art, thinking it would be easy. (laughs) In this art class, um, no one talked to each other. Maybe they did, and they just didn't talk to me. And so we went on this trip to uh, this museum, and on our way back, no one was talking, and the it was a cold winter day outside, so inside we had the van um, blowing the heat a little bit. No music was on, and no one was saying a word to me. And in college, you like to stay up to about 5 or 6 in the morning and then try to go to class at 8, and I was fading. Now, in some classes, I perfected the ability to sleep with my eyes open, and then my ears would perk up whenever it was time for assignment. And I faded. No one's saying a word because we don't care about each other. And I hate art anyway. And I, all of a sudden, they feel driving on the shoulder. And then my name was called, Jason! And that was the last day I was in that art class. When you put yourself in this text, which is important to do when you read the Bible, can you resonate with the notion of sinking into sleep when you don't want to? This house is packed. And people want to be here because Paul has come with his companions to bless these people. Some he's met for the first time, and maybe some it's a return visit. We can't know for sure. And the message goes on and on. And Eutychus tries and then tragically falls to his death. The intention of this upper room gathering we see was to break bread, which was an ancient Palestinian custom of a meal together, which began when the host or hostess actually literally broke the bread. But in time, what it meant for Christians is that we'd come together to celebrate Christ's death and resurrection. So we'd break bread and celebrate like Christ did this last supper. And so now it has a double meeting. We come and have a, like a mini meal together, but we're doing it because of our unity in Christ. And we're doing it to celebrate Christ, what he did on the, on the cross and then his subsequent resurrection. And a coming together in our unity to hear a message, to worship the Lord together. And that's what they're doing and it just goes on and on because Paul just wants to give as much as he can. He's going to be there the next day, so he wants to encourage him as much as he can. And he just keeps going and filling up the space. 
and people are fading. One is. That there was a point to this meeting. Paul wanted to meet with them as much as possible to build them up because he knew about the suffering they were going to face. And it's amazing that God meets them at this place. And we'll look at this text in a second. You know, it's interesting, the fact that these people would be willing to meet till midnight. I don't know if you've been to churches in other nations before, but I've been in Dominican Republic and Jamaica, South Africa. And they didn't have like an ending time. I thought maybe someone should tell them. I thought maybe I should tell them as a youth. I remember being in Dominican Republic and wearing headphones that were translating from um, Spanish to English, and a guy got, got up and spoke, and at the end I was like, okay, this is, that was great. And then another guy got up, without permission it seemed, and then a gal sang a song, and then they took an offering, then another person spoke, then they took an offering again. Can you imagine doing that in the States? And no one freaked out. But I'm really hungry, I thought to myself. And I couldn't really understand the Spanish a lot because I got a C- minus in Spanish, and that's only because my teacher liked me. It's interesting, around the world, you have to force people to leave. But in the States, you have to force people, to invite people to come. And then, like, try to keep them engaged and make sure you don't go over. Not here. These people wanted to hear these words because their life depended, their encouragement depended on these words. And Eutychus is falling into deep sleep. In verse 10, we see that he falls. In verse 9, he fell to the ground from the third story and he was picked up dead. Verse 10. And Paul went down and threw himself at the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. When the scripture says that he fell on him, it means that he just wrapped himself around him. Now, scholars and commentarians, people that, commentators uh, that talk about this passage, they believe that he just appeared to be dead. Some of them do. Some folks that like to take away from what Christianity presupposes as miracles, they like to take away from those things. But the author of this book is a doctor, and he would know if someone was dead. So when commentators say, uh, this person just appears to be dead, it reminds me of my, one of my favorite movies as a child. He's not really dead. He's just mostly dead. Hmm. It doesn't say that. It says that he was taken up dead. He's dead. The author, who's a doctor, knows that he's dead, and I believe that he was dead. So Paul went down and fell on him. One commentator said, when he fell on him, he just heard his heart ticking. He said, oh, good, good, good. It's okay, it's okay, he's alive. <laughs> no one get upset, it's okay. Whew. I almost thought he was bored to death. <laughs> <laughs> That's not it, he was dead. I wonder for Paul if he remembered from his training, even as a good practicing Jew, if he could remember back to the law and the prophets. If he remembered that in 1 Kings and 2 Kings, Elijah and Elisha both did the same thing. They fell on someone who was dead and the Lord brought them back. I wonder if that's what Paul reminded us. He was going down the steps. What is he going to do? Is he talking to the Lord? He's saying, God, what do you want me to do? And he just falls on him and prays and brings him before the Lord. And the Lord, through Paul, brings this boy back to life. And they experience a resurrection. They've come together to celebrate the death and then resurrection of Christ. And now they experience a death and a resurrection. And each one of them who is in Christ were once dead and an enemy of God, but are now been made alive like a resurrection and have been brought into God's family. Because Christ is wonderful. Not by actions of their own, but because of Christ who took on their punishment for himself. Your punishment, my punishment on himself. For any who will believe in that instead of believing themselves or their king for the, or queen for their life, but believe in Christ, will be saved. And not only just saved, but loved, chosen, redeemed, sealed, forgiven, and adopted. So now that you wear his name so that we come together, you and me are both, we're in Christ. 
So these folks are meeting, they're just planning on having a regular Sunday gathering. It says they met the first of the week. That means Sunday. They're going to break bread and do what they do and listen to a great message that goes on and on. Then they get to experience a death and resurrection. And I wonder if this conjured up what Paul had written to the Philippians in time. He writes to them in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, I pray that I might know him and the power of his resurrection. And yet Paul has seen this then over and over again where someone who was once dead and far from God, an enemy of God, is now in Christ. That's a miracle. And now he gets to see it in this way, which is really a metaphor for the spiritual reality of death and resurrection. Hmm. He says to them, don't be alarmed. And in the Greek, this idea here, it means to speak of wailing and lamenting like you might experience at a funeral. He says, don't do that. He's alive. He's alive by the same power that raised Christ, which we're about to celebrate together. So then the crowd experiences a death to resurrection miracle. And then we see God's encouragement to the church. Southbridge just turned seven and every month, every week, we're seeing life change. We're seeing people give their lives over to Christ. That's a miracle. People, we're seeing marriages reconciled and people, seeing addictions that are broken. That's, that's a miracle. And verse 12 shows us the third word of encouragement. Look at verse 12 again. The people took the young men home alive and were greatly comforted. That's the same word in Greek as the English word encouragement that we see in verse 1 and 2. So scripture indicates a reason why God does miracles. A reason is to increase faith. So in the midst of their gathering, they encountered the power of God, and then God encouraged them. So in our text, which is just a simple travelogue and then a weird story, we see Paul encouraging believers, we see a group of believers encouraging believers, and then we see God encouraging believers. Something that ought to be imitated and experienced. So our hope is that when we gather, we encounter the presence of the living, living Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. I want to look at something again as we close. Look at verse 11 again. Just by observation here. When the boy is pronounced alive, look what they do. Then they went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until midnight, or daylight, excuse me, he left. Now, here's another example of how Paul and I are vastly different. In my codependency, I do something like this. That was terrible. I'll see you guys next time. That's not what Paul does. They just experienced this amazing miracle. And what did they do? Let's go back upstairs and celebrate our Savior. Isn't that amazing? And how long do they celebrate? The text tells us, till daylight, giving them as many words as possible, but now reveling in the majesty of the Lord and his grace. And by way of God's sovereignty, did you know this? That the name Eutychus means this, fortunate. So now they got this kid who is so fortunate, I would say graced and blessed, just experienced this amazing miracle. And now they're about to go and celebrate the one that brings them together. That's Christ. And they're just worshiping the Lord together. And there's great encouragement, the text says. Everyone leaves greatly encouraged, greatly comforted. They go and they celebrate and they break bread. And we're going to do that together right now.